I was hard pressed to name it. It was an underlying syndrome of sorts that permeates my very being. It operates like a drone, a dull droning sound, always present, that most of the time is drowned out by my higher pitches of optimism and hope. I now know it to be black fatigue. This is the Inclusion Solution Live, the Winters Group podcast for all things diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. My name is Mary Frances Winters, and I will be your host for this series where we will explore the many layers of Black fatigue. Hello, hello, hello. This is Inclusion Solution Live, and I am here today with Duana Beeman, who is a thought leader in the space of diversity, equity, and inclusion. She's a dear friend and has had many years of experience uh, in this work, and we often commiserate about our journey uh, that we have had both separately and together. So it is an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for taking time out to share your experiences with Black Fatigue. Thank you so much, Mary Frances, for asking me to be part of this great initiative and and, um, just look forward to the conversation. As you said, you are certainly a dear friend and someone who I have looked up to and hold in dear uh, esteem for many, many years. So I am certainly happy to be here with you this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you. So why don't you just, I'm going to start with just having you tell tell us about, about you. Tell us about your journey. Um, and tell us about you know how you came into this work and just let, let the listeners know um, who you are. Sure. So um, I will say that you know what we talk about today is going to be an amalgamation of multiple companies and industries and different things that I've worked in over the past 15, 20 years. Um, I have a business background, so started out in a biz- many business roles and fell into DE&I as many of us have, uh, certainly by accident. And so um, always, you know, having the passion and doing something off the side of my desk around diversity and inclusion, whether it was at the time employee resource groups or diversity um, month, (laughs) I'm dating myself, if you remember diversity month, Um, but then moved into a formal DNI role about 15 or 16 years ago. And I've done this work, as you said, in multiple companies and industries. And so, um, you know, something that I'm definitely passionate about. It's been um, both a joy and a pain, um, challenging and rewarding. And so when you came out with Black Fatigue, I tell you, uh, I'm just really looking forward to this conversation because we have had some of that as well. So what what have been some of the the challenges, so some of the joys and the challenges for you over the past 15 to 20 years? What what have, uh, what can you kind of crystallize and synthesize that as? Yeah, I will say the joys are certainly when I see young people um, coming into their own and really having opportunities to to just uh, share that all of their God given talents, whatever those may be, whether it's in a business setting or whether it's in a uh, you know a, a educational setting, and just being able to have those opportunities and be able to mentor and coach and develop talent, uh, you know that's something that's a passion of mine. 
And then the challenges are the challenges that we have faced, uh, that you were facing when you were doing this work and still doing this work. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we take five steps forward and 10 steps backwards. Um, you know, the systems and processes that we have in place in organizations and uh, institutions um, are challenging in and of themselves to help make progress sustainable. And so um, this work continues to evolve. Um, and we, as we are seeing right now, are facing challenges that we've never even thought about facing before. Yeah, so let's talk about that. In, this, in these challenging times, at this moment in time, for such a time as this, mm -hmm. I wanna speak specifically to um, the Black fatigue that you may be experiencing yourself, as well as what you're hearing, um, what you're seeing, you know, just sort of uh, externally in, in the world. And, you know, how, how is that, you know, what's going on for you as we think about this particular period in time? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so this particular period in time, I don't think any of us could have ever imagined. Um, you know, I am a child of the 60s and late 60s, early 70s. So, um, you know, the, the, I won't say the end of the civil rights movement, but you know, not necessarily directly in in the civil rights movement. But my parents certainly were, and um, you know, they're both gone now. But even then, there's you know, even the things that they faced, I don't think they could have imagined what we're facing right now. Um, and it's not that it's new. Um, you know, the killing of innocent black men and women is not new. It's that we're seeing it more because of social media. Um, and that does present an additional level of fatigue, especially when you're trying to make change in organizations or in society or in your community or in your school systems. And you're trying to do your day to day and you wake up and the headline is another black man has been killed by police who was walking away from a domestic violence uh, situation that he was trying to de-escalate. And then you've got people who are, uh, you know, they've got their priorities, right? So I need that by the end of day, you know, tomorrow. And that might be their priority, but it's number three or maybe five or even sometimes number 10 on your priority list. And so how do you, um, you know, take care of yourself and protect what you need to protect to, to uh, preserve and have the energy to move forward. And I will tell you, it's not easy. Um, you know, I lean, lean on my village, uh, which you are a huge part of, um, our diversity divas. And, um, you know, just having that, that village around you is something that you have to have in these days and times because we're going through things I never would have thought. Um, you know, we've got executive orders banning diversity and inclusion training. Uh, you know, who, who does that <laughs> when you're trying to make an inclusive environment and educate people on how to be inclusive? Um, so I would just say, you know, th these, these days and times are just um, even more challenging than, than we could have imagined. And I would say, um, you know, we've got to protect and um, just acknowledge first and foremost that black fatigue is real. Um, some people I don't think understand, you know, black fatigue, um, especially, you know, in the uh, majority, if you will, um, communities. Um, they, they don't understand that 
I might not be myself today because what something that happened 500 miles away from here is still impacting me. So how do you build that into the systems, the systems of the, you know, the HR systems, the leadership um, education, how, how do you build that um, learning, that, that training to support and help leaders who are, you know, dominant group leaders, white, white leaders, um, to understand this, this additional emotional toll and not have it be where you're making excuses or we just treat everybody the same. How, how do you do that? Yeah, you, you can't treat everyone the same. You know, everybody talks about the golden rule. My thing is the platinum rule, treat people how they want to be treated because just the way, because you want to be treated, even as two black women, there may be things that you, you know, you will accept or want to be treated as that I'm like, okay, that's not as important to me, or that's not the way that I feel I want to be treated. So you have to treat people the way that they want to be treated. And the only way to do that is to have conversations to educate yourself. And I say educate yourself. Do not rely on your Black colleagues and employees to educate you. There is materials on Google that you can do some reading. You can read Black fatigue. It's not just for Black people. I have been telling, I have been telling people, you've got to read this book. Um, for Black and African Americans, you will find yourself in some pages of this book, if not all. And for our non-Black and African American colleagues and friends and family members and whomever else, you will get an appreciation and understanding of just a little bit, just a glimpse of what we experience on a daily basis. How do we how do we address this backlash? You mentioned the executive orders that um, that have come out. Um, one of the ways that I've addressed the executive orders, I, I read it and I said, "Yeah, we believe most of that because the executive order says oh, you should not um, that, that one race is not inherently." Um, you know, better than the other race. Yeah, we, that's what we believe, right? Um, the executive order says you shouldn't um, use narrow stereotypes. Oh, yeah, that's what we teach. <laughs> and that's what we believe. So I, I, I kind of think that it's, uh, well, part of it, I think, is, is a misunderstanding because there's some of these terms we've never used before. And I also think that the other aspect of it is just, um, you know, dominant group, um, you know, people who are afraid of losing something. What are your thoughts? I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, you did a phenomenal job of going through the executive order line by line and, and creating responses. And they were spot on because to your point, yes, we do believe that one race is not dominant over another. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that has been extremely helpful. But I would also say, you know, it is a misunderstanding and we've got to understand that it's not a zero sum game. And if we're coming at this as a zero sum game that if I take, if I give to this person, I'm taking from that person, then we're missing the point. It's not that we want to take your seat at the table. How about we make a bigger table and everybody can sit at it. Um, so it's, it's, uh, we've got to get to that place. And until we do, um, you know, and it's, it's going to be difficult because you have people who these beliefs are very deeply held that if you take, if I say Mary Frances can have this opportunity, well, then that takes an opportunity away from me. No, let's create more opportunities. Yeah. And in the 36 years that I've been doing this work, you know, that message has just been such a difficult message to get people to understand because I think we, we live in this with this scarcity, um, scarcity mentality rather than, than an abundance mentality. And if I do better, then you do better. And then we all do better. 
um, and people not seeing the connectedness of all of those things. And I think that's where systemic racism um, comes into play. So I wanna talk about that, but I first want to talk about if your experience has been similar to mine that in the corporate world anyway, terms like racism, terms um, like uh, white supremacy, terms like privilege are terms that, that we have um, not been able to even use because of the discomfort that they, that they cause. And I think it's because of the misunderstanding of what those what those terms mean. So I straddle, you know, the work that we do at the Winters Group. We do both work in um, the not-for-profit world, where those terms are, you know, more or less standard. You know, the social justice space. But in the corporate world, we talk about diversity, uh, belonging, inclusion, and not even equity. Sometimes I know I have clients who shy away from even using the term equity because they say, well, it's really about equality. And we know that there's a difference. So I want to talk about the language a little bit with you and how you've seen the corporate language perhaps evolve or perhaps not evolve. Yeah, um, it's funny you say, you know, you use the equity and equality. I, in my office, when, when, when I was in my office, um, I have a, uh, a picture that I have put on a canvas and you, most people have seen it and it's the, the three uh, children watching a baseball game and you've got the equity and the equality on one side and people often will come by and they'll look at it and they have this kind of puzzled look and then you see the light bulb go off. Oh, I get it. You know, there's a difference between equity and equality. Um, but yes, the language is crucial and we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable because race, racism, systemic racism, discrimination, all of those things um, exist and they're real. And if we can't talk about them, we can't overcome them. And, you know, I remember I've had several conversations over the years um, about reverse discrimination. There's no such thing as reverse discrimination. Discrimination is discrimination is discrimination. And so we, you know, if, if we get comfortable having those conversations and, you know, checking people, and I don't mean checking people in a way that's offensive or, or combative, but just saying, no, wait, you know, there's no such thing as reverse discrimination. It's just discrimination. Um, let's continue on now. We can now have, go ahead and finish this conversation, right? Um, if we talk about the fact that yes, systemic racism exists in 2020, <laughs> systemic racism still exists, right? How are we going to address it? And I think, you know, we've seen um, corporations across mul a multitude of industries in the last few months come out with these statements about, um, you know, addressing social justice and racial equality and systemic racism. And that's something that I think is a long, uh, long overdue. Um, I think I, I'm hopeful that this is not just a moment and it will continue. Um, because until we have those dialogues and really start to break down those systems, we're just going to be right back where we were a year ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago. And we've got the opportunity now to say, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to let this just be a moment. We're going to continue and make this a movement. Yeah, some of the concern that I had in looking at some of those statements of solidarity that companies came out with is that it looked like we're going to do what we've always done. You know, we're going to put money into uh, some of these civil rights organizations, but, you know, mostly the traditional ones, which is a good thing. You know, don't get me wrong. I, you know, I'm a life member of the NAACP and Urban League, <laughs> you know, but when, when it comes to some of the um, younger activists um, who are out there, you know, with the organization Black Lives Matter, you know, organizations, I mean, the big companies, you know, kind of shy away from 
um, supporting those organizations that seem um, somewhat more um, controversial, you know, uh, if you will. And so I think, I think anyway, if we're going to shift the paradigm, we also have to do things differently because if we do what we've always done, we're going to get what we've always gotten. And some of those statements to me look like that. So I had a, a, a client yesterday call and, and they have uh, developed and set up as a result of one of the things they said they were going to do some kind of an equity office. I, I won't say the exact name of it because it might reveal the company. So they called me to say, we have no idea what we're doing. We set this equity office up and we, we said, can you come in and consult with us because we don't know how to do it. And we're all stumbling around and having all these meetings and it's not going anywhere. And so my concern is that these statements while laudable, do you actually know how you're going to implement on what you say you're going to do? Is it even reasonable to say that you're going to do this? The other thing that's been happening with our clients is that Everybody has to do something before the end of the year. Everybody has to get something going because they promised that they would get this training done uh, before the end of the year. And of course, you know, my pushback is let's do it right. Um, because, you know, in a big corporation, you've got all these people who have to be at the table, all these people who have to sign off on things. And so by the time you do all of that, you know, it's November, right? And so why are we going to start something now, right? And rush to do it. But I have a couple of clients who are saying, we have to, we have to do something. We have to do something because we promised that we would do something. And so, you know, it's kind of really stepping back and saying, well, why did you promise that? You know, without knowing what it really takes to do it. It's like, okay, why, why now? Why are you creating this chief diversity officer role now? Why, you know, what is this person going to do? Will they have the resources available to them to do the work that they need to do? Do you even know what you want them to do? <laughs> um, and it's, it's amazing that, you know, it's they, that is the solution, if you will, or training is the solution that's going to fix 401 years worth of oppression. And we know that that's not the case. And so I agree with you. I like that question and pushing back and asking, you know, why did you promise that? Because it puts the onus back on whoever made that promise to th really think about, you know, was that the right promise to make? And if it was, and I'm not saying that it, it necessarily wasn't, did I make it with the right um, expectations? Because in terms of black fatigue, the people who are in roles of um, in the diversity, equity, inclusion roles in organizations um, have told me that they are just absolutely stressed to the max because of the expectations that are being put on them. And oftentimes people in these roles, as you know, are people of color. And so when we're talking about ameliorating uh, systemic racism and organizations now being very uh, open to do that, they're putting the burden on the people on the people of color to do it, right? To be involved and to be involved in doing it. And so, you know, late nights and, and expectations of getting things done, you know, in this 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 sense of urgency, who's the sense of urgency being put on? Who who's the your burden? And so that's one of the things I talk about in Black Fatigue. When you set up um, anything that has to do with diversity, oftentimes it's led by a person of color. If you set up a diversity council or a diversity committee, oftentimes people of color are the ones who are asked to, you know, to serve on, on these um, committees. And it's in addition to your day job. So in addition to what you do um, on a regular basis, now you're asked, being asked to do this. And what I'm hearing, particularly from the younger activists, which has you know, been a real learning for me, 
is you need to compensate me for that. You need to pay me some kind of way for that extra, that extra labor. So, um, you know, just, let's just, I'm going to hear your perspective on this additional burden and, um, you know, how we, how we lessen that burden. Yeah. And I think your tagline of the book, you know, how uh, racism, but also this extra burden erodes your mind, body, and spirit, because it really does have an extra toll that you're paying physically. Um, and so we already know that especially people of color have higher rates of hypertension, higher rates of diabetes and other conditions. And when you add this added stress, it only exacerbates that, right? And so we're in the midst of a pandemic. We know that COVID is impacting black and brown communities more than any other community. And you're adding, so, and they've already got some comorbidities in some situations, and now you're adding this extra layer of stress. And so at some point, your body shuts down, whether it's your brain saying, okay, if you don't have sense enough to shut down, I'll shut down for you, or some physical manifestation. And so we have got to, um, you know, have those conversations with those in, in leadership to say, we can't ask the folks that didn't create the problem to solve the problem. The folks that created the problem have to solve the problem. We're here to help you, guide you, give you resources, empower you, but you have to own it. And until we get to other folks owning it, we're not going to be able to change because to your point earlier, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And you're not going to get a different result. So, but here's the, here's the quandary, Duana, here's the quandary. So we're going to give, we're going, and I, and I agree that the um, primary responsibility for correcting systemic um, inequities lie on those who, who created those systemic inequities. And so, yes, white people. However, um, they don't know how to do it because they don't have the um, education. They don't have the knowledge. Uh, I was so shocked, um, you know, in May and June, May when um, on all this, um, started with the George Floyd and, and other, you know, murders. And, um, and then companies, you know, started to come out and say, wow, we, we didn't know. We, we didn't know that racism was still such an issue. And so that's fatiguing as well. It's like, where you been? I've been doing this work for 36 years. I've been telling folks for 36 years, it's an issue. <laughs> I guess you didn't listen. Or, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe my voice didn't have enough credibility and others. I mean, there's so many others, as you well know, I, I'm not saying I'm the only one who's been saying it. There are lots of us who have been saying that racism is still an issue. But then you have, um, you know, uh, most leaders who are coming out and say, I did, number one, I didn't know it. And number two, I, I, didn't, I didn't know the history. I didn't know and, and that this, you know, chapter four in my book is um, then is now. And I show how many, you know, socioeconomic indicators have not changed over the years. And that's so fatiguing to have to continue to, to deal with this. So my quandary is this, and I've been really thinking about this. If we say it's the responsibility of, of white people and white, white leaders, and I call them power brokers, I call, I call, you know, we talk about allies, but and allies are fine. But I think that allies are not often well, some allies may be in the position to change systems, but not always. Allies are in a position to support an interpersonal kinds of relationship, like you're in a meeting and an ally can you know, be somebody who speaks up, right? But they can't necessarily change the system. People in power can, and we saw how they started to change, the, change um, things just like that. Okay, we're gonna have um, 
Juneteenth as a holiday, not that I think that changes the system. However, they were making decisions about change because they are in a power position. And I call them power brokers and you need more power brokers. But the power brokers are not educated. And so the solutions that they come up with may not be the solutions that are really going to eradicate the, the system. So they need us to, to do that. That's fatiguing. So how do you, how do you balance that? Um, that's the million dollar question, Mary Francis. So um, it, it's 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 a, a challenge that I don't necessarily have an answer for. I agree with you, but I don't necessarily have an answer for because it has to be, it can't be either or, it has to be and. And it is fatiguing. And so, um, you know, I, it's, you talked about, you know, uh, then, then being now. I remember being in uh, Washington, D.C. with my family a number of years ago, and we were at the um, National Archives. And there was this young white woman with her two young daughters, and their daughters must have been maybe five and seven, and they were reading the Constitution. And they weren't just reading it, she was actually walking them through line by line. And when they talked about, when they read the line, all men are created equal, she asked them the question, well, do you think that meant women? And they said, no. And she said, well, do you think that meant people of color? And they said, no. And I wanted to go up to her and thank her for educating her children at that age, because that's where it starts. And, it, you know, but it was just such a moment that she was having with her daughters. I didn't want to intrude in that moment. And, and I didn't. And I just kind of watched from afar. But I think we've got to build systems so much earlier than before we get to corporate America, because um, that's where it starts. You know, my daughter just started teaching in elementary school and she's already seeing some of the things that, you know, kids t say to each other that aren't very nice. And they don't learn that when they're born, you know, they don't come into the world with that. That's learned at home. And so, yes, we've got to create systems and break down processes and all of those things in our HR systems and our talent systems and all of that, but we've got to hit it so much earlier as well. Oh, I think that is so profound. Um, and look at and looking at those interconnections um, where the system really starts to break down and it does start to break down in our educational system in so many different ways. So in one way, that the history is just not taught, it's not taught accurately, so that's one. Um, another way is the resources um, that are allocated to public education. Uh, Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, which made uh, segregated um, public schools illegal. Public schools are more segregated today than they were in 1954. So how has that system changed? It, it, you know, it has not. When we look at how resources are allocated to public education, oftentimes it's, it's, they use the tax base in that community to allocate resources. So the um, more uh, black and brown people don't own their own homes and so the tax bases are, are lower. So that's where dif the difference, one way the difference between equality and equity comes up because those resources are allocated equally, you know, based on some percentage, not equitably. And so those schools do not have the, the computers. We, and we're seeing this now during the, pa the pandemic while children are um, having to learn you know, online that um, disproportionately many of our black and brown children don't have, don't have, that, uh, don't have that access. 
And so I agree with you totally. And that's how we can understand the, the, you know, the systems. And so somebody who's in the corporate world, you know, who says, well, what can I do? You know, you can go back and really understand if you're try, trying to build a pipeline. We hear that a lot in the corporate world, right? We need to build a pipeline. So I was having a session with doing a session with a large um, pharmaceutical company uh, with their uh, research scientists, the head of the research science and, and all of his direct reports. And we were talking about the fact that oftentimes children don't even know what a research scientist is, right? And so how can I aspire to be one? Because they were lamenting that they don't have any, that where do I go to find, you know, black research scientists? I'm sure there are many that, that you can go to, but, but the point being is that if you're going to change the system, you have to start early. So he said, you know what? He said in the 90s, because this gentleman had been with this large pharmaceutical company for about 35, 40 years. He said in the 90s, he said, we had a program where we adopted a school and the whole reason for adopting that school was to go into that school and help children at a very early age learn about what a research scientist you know, is and does. He said, we also provided resources to that school because they were, you know, they lacked the resources so that that company was putting money into the school. And he, you know, and the point was, is even if you got a half a percent of those kids who became research scientists, it's more than zero. Exactly. And you know what he said? He said, hmm, so we don't do that program anymore. He said, I, I, I don't know why, but, but to your point earlier that you made very early in our conversation, um, the need to sustain the, the efforts. And I know that I've seen over the years in the 36 years that there are start, start and stop, start and stop. So to your point about this not being a, a, a moment, um, how, how, do you, how do we make this not a moment? And how do we make those interconnections so that people actually see how the systems are structured to disadvantage? black and brown kids? Yeah, um, I think, you know, I have seen quite a few leaders um, in multiple organizations who are really trying to educate themselves and really going through that self-reflective deep thought process of, to your point, I didn't know, I didn't understand, um, how can I educate myself? So they're reading, you know, Dr. Ibram Kendi, and they're reading uh, White Fragility, and they're reading Black Fatigue, and they're reading all of these things. Um, and that's great. But we've also got to continue to bring them along the journey. And that can't just be, okay, you've read this book, and you're now woke, and you know that racism is here. What are you going to do about it? And not just what are you going to do about it today? What are you gonna do about it tomorrow and next month and next year and five years from now? And really challenging them to not make this, you know, just a, okay, I, I, I've got, now I get it. I understand that we're still here um, because if that's the case, you go back to, okay, well, you know, I'm the CFO and I've got to get the financials done and I've got to do all of those things. And you go right back to what you were doing and nothing else gets done. And we can't let that happen. And I think we've got a great opportunity now, especially with our young people. I watch our young people um, and I know, you know, I'm a, a Gen Xer um, and I know that they're out there marching and protesting peacefully. And I want to be clear, peacefully, um, because it, the uh, the ones that aren't peaceful are, are overtaking the, uh, the 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 limelight from those that are who are the majority, um, but they're they're demanding change, and so I think we need to continue to encourage them as well to force those conversations. 
um, you know, force your leaders to have that conversation. And I'm seeing that. And I know leaders don't know what to do with that. So I think that's where we come in to reinforce and to help them understand why these young people are co coming to them now to say, okay, I want to know, you know, what we're going to do in the school system in my community. Thank you for that. Um, what what else? Um, what else can leaders do? Uh, what specifically? So one of the things I think taking it from the the, the boardroom, taking the from the boardroom out in the community, we're actually doing a series on, in our um, inclusion solution blog uh, about that. That um, in order to in order to have systemic change, it can't just be what you do inside of the organization. And so, you know, thank you, thank you for, for that. Thank you for all of the um, contributions that you make to this field. Um, this has been an amazing conversation and I thank you so very much for your time. This has been Dewana Beeman, who is a thought leader in diversity, equity and inclusion. Uh, and we, um, we appreciate all that you do and we'll continue will continue to do. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Mary Francis, for having me. Um, this has been a great conversation. Um, you are someone who I see as a trailblazer and we follow in your footsteps. You have really been um, a, a, a mentor and a friend and a dear friend to me. And I just thank you for all that you do as well. Thank you very much. Be well, be yeah. well, stay healthy. Yes, you too. Thank you for listening to this My Black Fatigue series on the Inclusion Solution Live. If you would like to share your comments and personal stories based on the series, use hashtag MyBlackFatigue on social media. And for podcast updates as well as resources, follow us at The Winters Group. Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit is now available on Amazon, Bookshop, IndieBound, Barrett Kohler, and Barnes & Noble.